Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. been intrigued by history. I really love looking into my family history and while I haven't for some time, I can actually spend quite a lot of time on ancestry, trying to trace back where everyone fits in, when did they immigrate to Australia, how did they get here, who's related to who. And you could imagine Josh's surprise when I discovered that his and my great-great-great-grandmothers were sisters and immigrated to Australia back in uh, 18, sorry, not 19, 1860 from Germany. So I was really excited when it came to um, hearing that I would be preaching in the Advent series and being able to delve into my own little carol and find out all the little nitty-gritties about it. Until I read the first sentence about my carol, which was, author unknown. Nonetheless, I was not going to let that deter me. So some little quick facts hopefully up on the screen, thanks Mark, about my carol, which is, O Come All You Faithful, is that with a little bit of searching, um, we found that John Francis Wade is a potential author, not necessarily uh, him, but it has been attributed to him, and it was written around the time of 1751. It was written originally in Latin, and was translated in around 1850-ish by Frederick Oakley. Uh, And the tune, now the tune itself could not find anyone who we knew that actually wrote that. Lots of people potentially could have contributed to that, but um, it is known as Adeste Fidel's. And just a little quirky point I just wanted to add was that it has potential Jacobite links, but I won't get into that because that's, that's a whole nother story, I think. Um, but yeah, before we get started, won't you pray with me, church? Heavenly Father, you have gifted us over time with so many wonderful musicians and composers who have taken the time to celebrate your birth in some amazing carols and hymns. So Lord, while we have a look today at O Come All You Faithful, would you help us to keep in mind that this song has been written to glorify you and that you are the centre of all the songs that we sing and they all point 
to you. Amen. So, the band is going to play the first, just the first verse and the, oh, don't look so sad. <laughs> the first, sad, first verse and the chorus, and then at the end we will sing the whole um, carol. So, would you take it away, guys? Church. We have been and continue to focus on making our church a welcoming place for those who do not yet know Jesus. So if this is the case, what do we do with the first name, with the name and the first line, O come all ye faithful? It seems a little bit exclusive, doesn't it? Because it's talking to the faithful followers of Christ. And so while it does seem exclusive, it's designed to be. This line is a direct call to all Christians, a reminder to all those faithful to, to Christ to remember the reason for the season. If we look at Psalm 30, verse 4, the psalmist sings, calls us to sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people, praise his holy name. It's almost as if we are being called to arms, to stand, to fight the good fight. All you faithful believers, come together and unite and let the world know why we celebrate Christmas. We don't have to look very far to see just how commercialised Christmas has become. While it isn't true, it has been commonly believed that the reason Santa wears a big red coat is because of the marketing campaign done by Coca-Cola. And apparently, as the myth goes, Prior to this marketing campaign, Santa wore green. And remember, it isn't true, but it's this big myth and all to do with the advertising campaign that we have come to, people have come to accept this as truth. 
However, long before Coca-Cola decided to, to uh, open happiness, Santa, or as we also know him as Saint Nick, he was often depicted as wearing green or brown and red. But the fact that this misconception exists is, is due to the extensive marketing campaign that exists around Christmas. And this is just one example. So it is really quite essential that we as Christians rally together around Christmas time to declare the truth about Christmas and the fact that the joy and the hope that are hallmarks of this festive season, they are present because of the birth of our Saviour. So we need to reach out to our community and make sure that they are aware of this. If we look at now the second line. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. What's so significant about Bethlehem? apart from it being the birthplace of Jesus. Why did it happen to be that Bethlehem was chosen to be the spot where he was born? If we read the story, we know that Joseph and Mary had to go there because Joseph was um, part of that family that was, came from Bethlehem to be counted in the census that was running at the time. But surely, if Jesus was to be so great, wouldn't he have been born in somewhere of more significance? Like Jerusalem? Jerusalem is where the, the temple is. So wouldn't it have made more sense for him to have been born there? Bethlehem was considered to be quite a quaint little town of very little significance. Though for history buffs like me, you would know that it has played numerous roles throughout the narrative of the Israelite nation. If we pop up on the screen, Micah chapter 3, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathath, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It was Bethlehem where Naomi returned with Ruth after their husbands had died. Ruth wasn't a Jew, but a Moabite woman. But her commitment and dedication to her mother-in-law, Naomi, would be greatly rewarded. Ruth would then marry Boaz. They then had a son called Obed. Obed went on to have a son called Jesse. And Jesse would be the father of David 
The same David who would be king of Israel. The same David who with a single stone killed the mighty Goliath. Now David's little story, how does David fit in? Well, the prophet Samuel visited his father Jesse and asked to see his sons. See, God had told Samuel that one of the sons would be anointed king. And where was David when Samuel came to visit? He was out looking after the sheep. He had been forgotten. He had been overlooked as the youngest son, thought to not be of any significance. But who would David become? The greatest king of Israel. So you might be asking, why are you telling me this, Mel? Another history lesson. But I believe it is through connecting all the dots and understanding all the different aspects and all the different various players in this narrative that we come to understand that God is at work in the world. Jesus' birth was not circumstantial. It had been meticulously, <coughs> excuse me, meticulously planned from the beginning of creation. And there were numerous prophecies throughout the ages that would speak of his arrival. Luke chapter 1 Verses 32, sorry, to 33 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. No part played in the narrative that led up to Christmas is insignificant. No one in all of the story leading up to the birth of, death, of, of Jesus and then his death was insignificant. They were all selected and chosen by God to play a very important role. So if God is at work in everybody's life, it doesn't matter how small or insignificant you might feel. God is at work in each and every single person here today and in every single person out there in the community. God is actually known for turning our preconceived ideas upside down. We think that he's going to work in, uh, well, he, and he is at work in leaders and significant people throughout the world. We think that you've got to be rich and famous for God to use you. But no, history and the Bible and the narrative that we read tells us that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from, God will use you. He is known for making and using the weak things of this world to shame the strong. 
He didn't send an army of angels to regain control of his creation once we'd stuffed it up. No, he sent a baby born in a stable in a town of very little significance to human parents of humble origin. If we jump forward to verse 3 of uh, Christmas Carol, we've got, See how the shepherds, summoned to his cradle, leaving their flock draw night with, draw night with holy fear, we too will tither, bend our joyful footsteps. Who do we acknowledge as the first to know of Jesus' birth? It was shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 to 16 says, Thanks, Mark. Yeah, oh, oh that's too far away for me to read. <laughs> when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. We have a handful of shepherds who were marginalised by society and the elite. They were the ones that were chosen to break the news that the Messiah had been born. So church... When we are called to Bethlehem, yes, we are called to remember the birth of our Lord and Saviour, but we are also called to remember that God does not work in the ways that we expect him to. We are being asked to leave our preconceived ideas behind and remember that he will use the weak to overcome the strong and the seemingly insignificant to redeem all of creation. Looking at verse 2, we have true God of true God, light of light eternal, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, son of the father, begotten, not created. If you are familiar with church liturgy, you might re recognise that some of these words are borrowed from somewhere, otherwise known as the Nicene Creed, which expresses succinctly our faith in the incarnation. So I've got to underline there, sorry, it, yeah, it is a little bit small. We've got in the middle there, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. This verse points us directly to who Jesus is. He is one with the Father and he was present from the very beginning. If we have a look at the beginning of John's Gospel, 
we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the the verses are all biblical. They all align with what we recognise as being the truth about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the plan to redeem creation shifted up a gear when Jesus was born on earth. He became both true fully hum- he became both fully human and fully God. And if we return to the Nicene Creed, we read that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. But to be honest, there is one line in this verse that bothers me. It is, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. What is with that sentence? It bothers me. Um, What is it really trying to say? Abhor. In... It's a word in English that we don't use all that too often. Um, But what it means is to regard with disgust and hatred. It's a really strong word. To abhor something is, is you really find it quite distasteful and you don't want anything to do with it. And there's the double negative in there too, so it sort of makes it quite a real, a real confusing sort of sentence. If we were to rephrase and sort of twist this around a little bit, it would read something like, look, he is disgusted with old women's reproductive organs. I'm surprised there hasn't been a public outcry against this line. I mean, why hasn't it not been cancelled? However, we can interpret this line a little bit more nicely. While the term abhor, in my opinion, is a bit extreme, when we consider that Mary was a virgin, we can interpret this as her being considered pure and untainted, and it fills Old Testament prophecy. But was God being risky when he considered the use of someone who had not previously had children? Mary, being a virgin, has no um, proof of her fertility. So was was God taking a gamble on using Mary as the woman who would bear his son? I think not, because if we look back and we remember Sarah, the mother of Isaac, we remember Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, and we think of Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, we already know that it doesn't matter. There are women who had tried for years and years to have a child, And God was gracious 
and gifted them the birth of their sons. So we already know that God, it doesn't matter to God. He is already adept at making sure that the birth of children occurs when it is according to his will. So if we have a look at the original um, Latin of this sentence, it says, gestant puerle visera. You know how much I had to practice that. <laughs> so which translates to carried in young girl's womb. Now that sounds much nicer than abhorring something. Carried in a young girl's womb. It appears that the um, translation, things got lost in translation from the Latin to the English. But there are, with a bit of Googling and having a bit of a look around, there are many other versions of this hymn. Some have different suggestions for this line, which I perhaps prefer, which uh, includes like, born of a virgin, a mortal he comes, or born of a virgin, to earth he comes, or lo, he comes forth from a virgin's womb. So much more nicer than abhorring something. But I will let you ponder what you think. I've had my two cents on that topic. The final verse I'm going to have a look at is verse 4, where we look at our angels. We have a sing choirs of angels. Sing in exultation. O sing ye all bright hosts of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. One commentary I read about this carol rates the carol quite highly on its biblical message. However, they felt that the accuracy of the message was tarnished by the inclusion of the angels singing. According to Luke 2, verse 13 to 14, it says, Suddenly a great company of all the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to all whom his favour rests. It is clear when we read that, that there were a multitude of angels praising and exalting Jesus. Though there were heavenly hosts present and they announced his birth, scripture does not clearly support the fact that they were singing. The author of this particular commentary focuses, and I guess I'm at risk of doing that because I didn't like the word abhor, but he got stuck on the fact that it says saying and not singing. However, it does say that they were praising. Now, we associate praising a lot of the time with singing, but there are so many different ways that we can praise God. It doesn't have to be just through singing. 
For example, we could be lifting our arms, declaring our dependence on him. We could be bowing, giving reverence to God in recognition of his holiness and sovereignty over everything that lives. We could be shouting, lifting our voices and praising God with all of our might. We could be singing and playing instruments, expressing our joy in God's presence. We could be celebrating, boasting, raving about it, expressing our love for God through physical motion. So I, in my mind, when we see um, the heavenly hosts bursting forth, I envisage all of those things happening. I envisage all the dancing, all the singing, all the shouting, the bowing, the lifting of arms in jubilation over the birth of our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. So I was excited by that. I thought, don't worry about the fact that it says saying. Of course there was singing. So if we reflect upon the title of this series, which is Songs of Hope, does O Come All Ye Faithful bring hope? For followers of Jesus, we can clearly see that it glorifies God and compels us to remember why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the birth of our Saviour, the one who came to restore creation, the same creation that had been corrupted by sin, so that we could be restored and made whole and new again as part of God's family. And the chorus urges us to pay attention and focus on Jesus and praise him, especially with all the repetition of, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. It is a little reminiscent of Psalm 95, which says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. We are called to join the angels and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for those who do not know or understand the true meaning of Christmas, the references to Bethlehem, angels, Christ, the Virgin Mary, all point towards Jesus. And if there are aspects of the Christmas story that you do not understand, I encourage you to ask. Ask myself, Josh, anyone on church council. Do not leave today if you have got questions about how this all fits together. So at the beginning of the message today, I referred to the fact that the first line and the title of our hymn today calls upon the faithful followers 
of Jesus to act, to boldly proclaim the triumphant arrival of the King of Angels. We are therefore charged with the responsibility to make sure that the others around us know the truth and join in our ranks to declare Christ the Lord. So apart from singing the carol, what are you going to do this Christmas as a faithful servant to point the way to Jesus? Perhaps you could invite someone to personally invite someone to one of our Christmas activities. I'll suggest now perhaps going out to Sandy Creek to the Nativity since the gingerbread night is already um, sold out. How great is that? Or perhaps the Christmas services. We've got so many going on in our congregation. It's truly fantastic. So I encourage you, don't just send a message or text someone or just give, put a flyer in the letterbox. Actually, personally, ask someone. I dare say that they will say yes. So either way, my challenge to you is to make sure that the people around you know why you are celebrating Christmas. So I pray that you would then go out and joyfully and triumphantly declare this Christmas that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you so much thanks and praise for everything that you have done in our lives. Lord, there is nothing that you leave to chance. There is nothing that you do that is, happens by accident. You are at work in everything that we do. So Lord, this Christmas we give you thanks and praise for sending your son Jesus who ended up dying on the cross so that we could be restored and be called children of God. Give us the courage to go out and tell people the good news that comes at Christmas so that more and more people will know who you are and be at peace knowing that you are there for them. In your name we pray. Amen.